0: HRAA gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities. HRAA will take long or short positions, using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes, commodities, currencies, volatility indices, and other alternative asset classes. HRAA could provide balance to your portfolio by harnessing three unique investment styles. The first is an actively managed global risk parity portfolio to provide maximally diversified global exposure in optimal risk balance. The second is a proprietary systematic global macro process that attempts to profit from short-term market moves going both long and short on more than 50 global markets. Finally, HRAA uses a dynamic tail protection overlay that attempts to profit from large moves in volatility markets. To learn more about this, please visit www.horizonsetfs.com HRAA to read about the ETF's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the ETF.
1: Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left brain robots, right brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey.
2: All right, all right. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Friday. How How are you guys doing? very how well I, jack how good. are you cheers good cheers.
1: cheers what do we got i got uh i've
2: got a cup of of tea with with cognac <laughs>
3: uh, spicy margarita admit, a cup of tea i never even had a
2: chance coniac. to wow. drink
1: i was back yeah. to back to back today
2: i don't know the body wants what the body wants i don't know why yeah well, fair enough <laughs> like
3: jack's got, know, got a, a got, jack's got a great martini go not martini uh, spicy margarita, margarita here yeah i yeah, try to so, i try to
4: be an amateur drink maker in my in my spare time so uh I figured I'd yeah. put my best foot forward for my first resolve Riff's appearance.
2: I do love yeah, a spicy it's margarita. A good, good it's one of my favorites. Did you make it skinny with the agave syrup? Or did yes. You just yeah, started? just lime and agave. Ah, nice. I, I, hate, I can't stand mix, so yeah. I, I have to make them all fresh.
4: It, it was weird. My wife was, uh, you know, when I before I came on here, I was downstairs like juicing limes, and my wife was like, what the hell are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm going <laughs> on an investing podcast. I got to juice some You're limes to work.
3: <laughs> right. <laughs> Non-sequitur alert. <laughs> yeah. One of
2: the pleasures of uh, of the riffs, <coughs> happy hour, getting yep. together.
3: Okay, yes. let's hear it. Let's hear that oh, disclaimer.
2: Yeah. Come on. Yeah, yeah right, right. So, so keep in mind that this is for uh, educational purposes only and not investment advice. So we're going to have lots of wide-ranging conversations. Don't take investment advice from four guys on YouTube at 4 o'clock on a Friday afternoon. Do your own research and hand, homework. Hand. Having yeah. said that welcome jack forehand to the stage ladies and gentlemen put your hands together <laughs> thank you guys very much for having me it's weird it weird be on the other side of the mic
4: here i'm used to being yeah. on the side you guys are on
2: so yeah. what would so you ask in, yourself in if
4: you were on our side of the mic? Two,
1: five minute period why don't you tell us everything you've learned in the last year of doing your podcast yeah go you know, yeah i mean i've learned
4: a lot of things um you know i'm not i'm not a natural like uh, i'm i'm not a natural questioner of people so you know a lot and a, a lot of it is just the setup and what has to go on behind the scenes and you know there's there's so much to doing a podcast that's more than the interview itself like getting the right guests and figuring out the audio equipment And we were talking before we went on like people are just dropping out you know and the people can't get the setup right and they're dropping out and so I've learned a lot about that stuff, but also just the, I guess the flow of an interview is, is something I've learned a lot about, like how to structure these things um, in, in terms of like making it so it's, it's entertaining for the person that's watching, but also informative and also, you know, maybe how much to... We've debated a lot in terms of like what we put in front of guests before they come on like you know we've debated with giving them basically everything we you know all the things we're gonna ask about or you know having them come on without knowing much and so I've learned a lot about that too in terms of what maybe produces the best well, What did, did
3: you land on I'm curious because we, we haven't experimented with that. So
4: for, for us, we've, we've done better when we give people a lot of information up front. I mean, we don't give them, you know, necessarily exactly what we're going to ask, but when we give them a lot of information up front, it's better just because it allows them to think about the topics we're going to cover. Um, and so, you know, some people we, we've had on or, you know, like we've had, we've had Adam and Rod on, we've had podcast veterans on and know what they're doing where you don't have to do that. But then other people, you know, who, who aren't used to it, you know, the more we give them in advance where they, where they know sort of the topics we're going to cover, they tend to have better insights. Um, In the podcast. So I know some people are very, you know, rigid about that and say, you know, I want this to be a a free ranging conversation where the people have no idea what's coming. But, you know, I don't think that's our necessarily our talent. And, you know, I I think we we found that it's better when people sort of do have have a general idea of what we're going to cover.
3: Apparently, we're rigid about free, free, free balling. (laughs) (laughs)
4: <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like it. You know, I never, uh, I've guys, been on like, this is I think my fourth or fifth podcast I've done myself and I've I've had the whole range of it. I've had people who basically told me nothing about what was going to happen. And then I've had people who basically said, here's exactly what we're going to, you know, every question to the letter we're going to ask you. Um, and, and I don't think there's I a right the, answer. I, I mean, hope the
1: title gives it away, right? Well, the resolve. Yeah. Well, I, saw that, I, and and I saw that yesterday. At all.
4: I saw that yesterday. I'm like, oh, at least we're, we're kind of in my, at least we're kind of in my sweet spot. You know, it's uh, a. Yeah. I was listening to Tim Ferriss about this the other day and he was saying like, you know, if, if you look at one end of the spectrum, you've got basically like James Lipton, you remember inside the Actor studio? Yeah. He essentially yeah, just yeah. reads every question to the guests. Like there is no, there's no follow-ups. There's no, he does that. And at the other end, you've got like Larry King who basically just ha- goes in there completely blind and just asks whatever he wants. So it, it can be done successfully, I guess, no matter what way you want to do it.
2: I think the best one I saw was Larry, Larry King interviewing Seinfeld and, and, you know, asking him like questions that, were not relevant in Seinfeld's like I we I was the number one tv show I went out on like when you were canceled like when you went off the air Larry King's asking him in mean, Seinfeld like it's like just skewers it, right? king live <laughs> he, like what kind of research and he looks over shoulder? what kind of research are you doing for this guy does he not know we were number one when we went <laughs>
0: just yeah like zero out, I guess is
2: what he did give him the biggest in the business anyway okay so as we get into it Jack why don't you Tell everybody like like uh, Rod said in five minutes or less, maybe three minutes. Um, give people a little background: who you are, no w- what valid he is, all that sort of stuff. What you're doing, and uh, and then let's dive in the investing side because I think people k- tuned in for some of the investing uh, nerdiness rather than the podcast. Well, that's,
4: that's right in my sweet spot. Uh, yeah. yeah. You know, I feel like when a lot of investors go on podcasts, they have these great stories about how, you know, when they were a young kid, they always want to be an investor. And so they got the paper route and then, you know, they invested in their first compounder at 12 or something. And I'm like the, basically the complete opposite of that. Um, you know, I didn't care about investing at all until my senior year of college. Um, I saw a sign. I was, oh, I went to UConn, university of Connecticut. Um, and I saw a sign on the wall that somebody was looking for an investing intern. Um, and so I responded to that. And, and that intern, that company was the Reese group, which was the precursor, to Validia. And what, what the Reese group was doing was they were trying to hold the financial media accountable for their recommendations. So for instance, they would go, you know, read the street.com or go on CNBC and watch Kramer or whatever it is and say, all right, this person recommended this stock on this day. Let's track the returns one week, one month, three months, six months, one year. Let's see how they actually perform and then we can like roll it up and we can say like how does this person perform? How does the columns perform? How do the periodicals perform? The sources, all of that. And so that that was the idea of the Reese Group, which was, you know, this was back in the in the late 90s. And so that was the tech boom. And so at that point, people were just throwing money pretty much at anything that was internet related. And so we we got some venture capital financing with the instructions basically, you know, we don't care about revenue. We don't care about profits. Just get a lot of people to this website. And so, and so we did that, you know, using that risk that, uh, what we call the Reese report or the grew. I think we called the media buzz at that time using that as our, as our idea. And then obviously the end is similar to what the end was for many people. Um, in that, at that time, um, March, 2000 happened, capital dried up. Um, you know, we weren't profitable. So we returned the money to investors that was left. Um, and then we shut it down and not to make the story too long, but, uh, so then I had a brief stint in the interior design industry, which, uh, we don't, we don't need to discuss, but, uh. Then, um,
3: way, way, beyond
4: way. that, we I went back to this. the,
1: I'm giving you an extra five minutes.
4: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I, I wasn't actually like determining whether the sofa matched the, the curtains or anything like that. I was, uh, my uncle was like a high-end interior designer here in Connecticut and I was, uh, helping him clean up his accounting and clean up his business. Um, so I, I was not, um, uh, I was not necessarily doing what, uh, what interior designers would do. But, uh, after that, I, I sort of, we, we had this secondary product with, with the Reese Group, um, which was this thing called guru analysis. And so the, the idea was we would take things like books or, or papers that had a quantifiable investment strategy. So, for instance, Peter Lynch's One Up on Wall Street. We would take that and we would find the quantifiable fundamental strategy and we would implement it. Um, and so you could use that in two ways. You could either use it as like a screening tool or you could, we created like this sentence based analysis where you could type in a ticker and it was sort of like using this quantitative methodology from One Up on Wall Street here is how you might analyze this particular stock. And it was in each sentence, it would fill in the fundamental variables. Um, so, so we had this thing. And so I went back to the founder um, of the Reese group, you know, he had had a, he, he still had this intellectual property. And so I, I went back to him and I said, well, why don't you and I just start this um, as a new thing? And, and so we did. We started as a subscription website this time that we actually charged for, based around this idea of guru analysis. And back then we had eight strategies we were following. Now we have uh, we have like twenty two publicly, and we have a bunch more behind the scenes. But that was sort of the precursor to what we do today. So that that's the, the idea behind Validia is trying to find quantifiable investment strategies that have a long term track record. Um, you know, we started out back then with the big names, the Warren Buffetts, the Peter Lynch's. Now we focus more on maybe academic papers, Joseph Piotroski, you know, things like that. Um, but we we try to you know we build models based on those and we allow our subscribers to have access to them. So that's, that might be a little long-winded, but that is the, uh, that's the story of Lydia. I love you it. We got to come
2: back to the Petrovsky score one, too.
3: Oh yeah. No, I want to, I want to get yeah. into the data crunching too, but I just, yeah. because you are business partners with, with, with Jessica, right? So how did you guys um, connect and the nature of your um, Yeah. So leadership. Justin,
4: Justin was also uh, an intern there. Um, he was probably like the fifth person in the company. Um, and I was probably the seventh or the eighth. Um, at one point we got up to 51 um, in, the, in the dot-com boom. And, and that was mostly because of that media buzz thing I was telling you about before. That was very labor intensive to summarize all those articles. Um, but yeah, Justin and I, you know, we met back then and we, uh, you know, we kind of went our separate ways a little bit when it shut down. But then once we got it going again, he was, you know, a logical person to bring back in. So uh, we've been working together since then. That was 2003 when we uh, got it going and we've been working together since.
1: Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm just. It okay, uh, sounds my audio is Your audio is you know, your perfect, a little perfect, off. So. Yeah. Okay.
2: So Minus. Uh, no, 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 no. Add, no add, add, add. Is.
1: Um. Yeah. So, so the um. W- at which point? So this is. So you're basically a content marketing slash quantitative slash research firm, and you're pushing out that knowledge, like that education through what, like how, how often are you communicating with people and in what ways?
4: So that's sort of a newer thing for us. Um, you know, at the beginning we were just basically, we just had this research tool. And then as we sort of progressed in the business, we realized, you know, using content was going to be important. Um, and so I think it was back in 2017, I started writing like a weekly article for our blog, um, where I tried to share whatever it is I do know about, about factor investing. And then in 2019, we started excess returns, which is our podcast. Um, so, you know, that, that was sort of the content marketing was sort of a new thing for us, but we've never, you know, we're a very small firm. We've never done any paid marketing of, you know, maybe a little bit here and there, but really never any paid marketing. So this was sort of our way to number one is it's been a good learning process, but number two, it was sort of our way to, to bring people to the, to the property.
1: So let's walk through when you guys first started, you said you were at first the, the, um, the Peter Lynch's and the Warren Buffett's as everybody does. Of course, we all start there. um so how did how did that evolution go how do you go from warren buffett to factor investing
4: yeah so you know i mean well part of it was we didn't know that at the time but really what we're doing with warren buffett really is factor investing or peter lynch you know i don't know if you guys are familiar with the aqr superstar investors paper but you know they were able to go back and basically i mean they weren't really able to do it for lynch because there was a lot of alpha left over um but the other guys like buffett you know they were able to Break down the returns they had through factors. Um, you know that doesn't in any way take away from their returns because people didn't know about factors or know as much as we do now back then. But they were able to you know to do that. So I think pretty much everything we do is factors. You know we didn't know that at the time, but as we learned more about it, I think we we ended up going more in the direction of academic research. Um, and less in the direction, you know, when you start it, you want to market, you know, and, and in order to market, you want to have Warren Buffett and you want to have Peter Lynch and you know, you want to have those, those big names. I mean, we did Ken Fisher's book, super stocks, you know, we did Ben Graham, intelligent investor. We wanted to do those, those big names. And then as you kind of move on, you're like, oh, there's some really interesting academic research out there that we could add that, that you know, might actually be more high quality research, even though it doesn't have as, as good of a name.
3: I'm hoping that my audio is okay. Is this all right or no? Yes.
2: Yeah. Okay, it's not, cool. it's not skipping and chipping in.
3: Well, that's the point i guess at this point so um i just want to dig into the data and analytics because i mean you going back to sort of late 90s um how are you guys sourcing data that allowed you to be able to run that type of analysis that you um you know had intended to run there
4: so it was i mean it's it's been a huge evolution i mean at the beginning we had this computer that could barely handle the process and we were like getting these cds um, and we had to like load these CDs. I think it was called like Stock Investor Pro or something. We had to like load these CDs in in order to be able to do it. And, you know, so it, it was definitely nothing, it, not anything related to being automated. Um, but then as time has gone by, you know, it's gotten, as, as in 2003, we had um, Market Guide, which was, became Reuters, which is now Refinitiv. Um, so we had data from them and we've, we've basically worked with them exclusively since the beginning. They've They've changed names a bunch of times. But so by 2003, there was an automated, you know, an ability to do an automated update process. I I remember at the beginning we had like, nobody wanted to do it, but we had this job that somebody had to stay at the office till like four in the morning because the update would complete at like four in the morning and you had to be there like loading the CDs in and stuff. And so, you know, like we we would alternate, but you had like once a week or something, you had to sit there till four o'clock in the morning. And if something went wrong, you had, you were troubleshooting it at like 2am. So,
3: uh,
4: it was a process, but obviously today it's a much more, you know, Yeah,
2: today it's a much more cloud-based. You know, it's it's a smoother process than it was then. That's alpha. Can you talk a little bit about the process of quantifying um, the words, let's say, of a Peter Lynch, right? How difficult was that? It always seems to me that you know, in the research papers, probably a little bit easier. So you move to a slightly maybe easier domain, or maybe not. My perception would is it would be easier. But how did you morph sort of the the conceptual ideas that would come out of Warren Buffett's mouth, um, even, even in The Intelligent Investor and even in some of the books that are written, there's, there's a lot of leeway in between, you know, sort of the the nuanced implication, the nuanced meaning versus how you're going to codify that. Right.
4: So yeah, that's a really important deal with that. That's a really important point. And, you know, what we're not, what we were never trying to do is say, like, these are the stocks Warren Buffett would own, or these are the stocks Peter Lynch would own. You know, what we were trying to do is say, in this published writing, you know, it's all done through published writings. In the case of Buffett and Lynch, it's done through books. Um, Lynch, it's one up on Wall Street. Buffett actually hasn't written a book about his methodology. So it was, it turned, it, we used Buffetology, which is by Mary Buffett, who's his ex-daughter-in-law. Um, but in there, there was a quantifiable strategy. So obviously, the parts of their methodologies that are not quantifiable, we can't touch those. And so we're not saying, you know, we're not, we're not 13F guys. You know, we're not trying to figure out, like, we're not trying to match what we do to what they're holding. We're just, you know, we're just trying to take the actual principles that are outlined in there Um, And interpret them if we have to, you know, my, the, my partner, the founder, John Reese did those original eight books. Um, And we're trying as best we can to, you know, to match what's in there as a quantifiable strategy, you know, that sort of takes emotion out of the investing process while not saying that we're not, this is not what Warren Buffett, you know, there's times like with with Apple and stuff where we do overlap with what Warren Buffett holds, but you know, a lot of times we won't. Um, And also, you know, when you, when you look at interpreting Warren Buffett, one of the things, a strategy we run could do that, you know, Buffett can't do is obviously we can have small cap stocks in there. Um, if there happens to be a small cap stock that meets his criteria, he can't touch that, but we can, but the goal was never to say like, you know, we we're going to match Warren Buffett's returns or anything like that. It was more like there's a strategy here that uses quality. It uses value. It's based on Buffett. Um, you know, and that that on its own might be a decent standalone strategy, even if we're not trying to copy Buffett.
3: I'm really, really curious about what rules you codified for Peter Lynch, because I, I did a little bit of work on my own and obviously, um, dug pretty deeply into into the AQR paper, but the, the Peter Lynch track record is a genuine mystery um, in the context of like factor investing. Do you have any insights from your time spent trying to codify his process?
4: Yeah, well, I think what we do has very little to do with the Peter Lynch track record, I would say, because because of what you said, Um, you know, Peter Lynch was was not someone who was known as someone whose strategy could be quantified. But he did in in one up on Wall Street, he did have a quantifiable methodology, you know, for instance, he would classify companies at the beginning, either a stalwart, or a fast grower or a slow grower. And then Mm -hmm. according to each one of those tracks, you would have a different, you know, the peg ratio was his primary criteria in the book, but you would have a different set of fundamental criteria that would apply. So we developed a system that said, you know, let's classify companies first, and then let's apply these other tracks to them. And then let's spit out to people, you know, what are the the highest scoring stocks according to that? So, but I think you're right about that. I mean, Lynch is of everything we've quantified. I mean, Lynch is probably the most difficult to do. And we're probably the furthest from the actual person with Lynch than we are with anything else we've done.
3: Yeah, and I mean, it's just just simple peg sorts um, are not particularly useful, right? So, I mean, it's that's that's not a uh, that's not a, a ranking methodology that is has uh, stood the test of time for sure. So, um, there's there's a genuine mystery in what Lynch was doing that. I think will forever remain a mystery.
4: So, yeah. I mean, I yeah. was amazed in that, I mean, in that AQR paper, they sort of had like, I think a graph or something and, you know, each factor, what they attributed to. And with Lynch is like the unexplained was like the biggest by far. Um, oh, you know, God, pretty yeah. much everybody else, the unexplained wasn't that much, but with, with Lynch, it was huge. Um, so yeah, no, we definitely could not, um, we cannot automate Lynch. But we thought there was a a strategy that made sense in there. So we did implement it. And then, you know, we sort of put them up on our website and we let people, you know, some of our strategies do better than others. And we we sort of let people track them over time and and see how they do. So
3: So, what are the most popular strategies? Are you able to to go to the website data and see what people are tracking most? Yes,
4: always the top performing strategy right now. Um, So it is (laughs) never um,
1: to look back though. three months, six
2: months, one year, TPRN.
4: So we'll put the long-term results on there, but, you know, those will move, strategies will move up and down the long-term results over time. You know, we don't say like the, you know, we don't feature the best performer in the past month or the past, past three months or something like that. But as those change, the best performers long-term, you can see in the website data immediately as something else goes to the top, everybody searches for it. I mean, you do have the Buffets of the world that do at least are in the top ranking, you know, or in the top 10 you know, no matter what, but it is people, people chase performance. They search for whatever the best performer is. So, you know, right now it's, it's this twin momentum strategy we're running um, because that is the, the best performer. Um, but that, that, that does change depending on, or the Mohan Ram paper as well, which is also one of the better performers. Um, but that, that'll change. You know, if we get a huge run in value and the value ones move to the top, they'll be searching on Jim O'Shaughnessy's value composite or, or something like that.
3: So what's the twin momentum strategy?
4: It's a guy named, uh, I'll, I'll, I'm going to butcher his name. It's Dashan Huang is the way I pronounce it, but that's probably not the right pronunciation. Um, but it's a, it's a paper that basically looked at combining price momentum with fundamental momentum. So, you know, they use a, a straight uh, 12 minus 1 sort for one, one half of it. And then the other half of it is a seven different fundamental variables. You look in the trend in those seven fundamental variables over time, um, and that becomes a fundamental mo- momentum component. And so you have sort of a dual sort. You Sort on price momentum, and then you sort on fundamental momentum, and then you take the best combined ranking, um, and you put that in there. So, you know that that's been doing well, as, as you probably guess in the past. You know, with, with what's going on in the past decade, the growth slash momentum type stuff has done better, um, and so people people are attracted to that. And, I, and also, I think you know one of the challenges with momentum is people don't love price momentum because they can't explain why they're buying the stocks. At least we've found. I don't know if you guys have found that as well. But we have, you know, it's, it's like, well, if you have to tell someone to buy a stock based on price momentum, well, why am I buying the stock? Well, you're buying it because the price went up. Well, what about the fundamentals? You know, what's, is it cheap? You know, are these things growing? And you have to say to them, well, we don't really care about any of that. Like, it's just the price went up. And so I think fundamental momentum, whether, whether it enhances returns or not, people are very attracted to it in that it gives you a fundamental
1: reason on buying the stock in besides just the price went up. So you think there's a stick to itness that it, that the narrative there has that pure momentum doesn't.
4: Yeah. I mean, I think, I don't know if you guys have found this as well, but you know, I think over my career, the biggest lesson I've learned is the best strategy for anybody is the one that they believe in, the one they can stick with. Um, and so from that perspective, if you, if you feel better that the fundamentals are getting better along with the price momentum, then that's a better strategy for you than pure momentum, whether or not the academic research shows that or not.
1: No, it's amazing to me how it's always, you know, people think that investing is about, well, let's find the best investment manager and give it to him or her. And, um, and the reality is that people invest based on their values, right? It's whatever they believe to be true in Latin America, it's, you know, gold and real estate and a business, right? One or two businesses on the side um, in the U S it's Warren Buffett and value investing. Um, you know, you go to Europe and there's, it's a lot more acceptable to do quantitative investing. So, you know, values is everything and your values will dictate your ability to stick to a strategy. And it's really tough to, it's like a religion. So whenever oh, I'm in yeah. front of a DFA manager, trying to change their minds is nearly impossible. If not, I don't think I've ever done it. I think I've only held, I've only been able to convert the, the recently DFA converted where they finally came to a come to Jesus moment and said, I need to look at something different. But I've never been able to catch them and convert them ever.
4: And that was something I struggled with early in my career is, you know, I would always say to, to a client or something like that, well, you know, this is a better performing strategy than what you're doing. Why would you not want to do that? And the reality is I've learned that, you know, they're not going to stick with that strategy. If you have to convince them that it's the best thing for them, they're not going to stick with it. You know, you're better off taking something that may be a little bit inferior to at least in your own mind. If they can if they can adhere to that strategy, they're going to get way better results with it. So I've, I've learned about that, you know, over, over the course of my career.
3: What about the performance chasing? Have you guys done any analysis at all on um, how effective it is to be constantly rotating into the strategies that have the best performance at any given time?
4: Yeah. You know, I mean, we've done a little bit, you know, we, we do, uh, you know, I'm not a big factor timing guy, although we do have some stuff on there where we've, we've tested factor timing. Um, Yeah. and, And I do think when, when you do, factor timing. Again, if you do it properly, I mean, I think momentum has probably been shown to be the best way to be doing factor timing, at least from the, from the research I've seen. So, but that's not performance chasing in terms of, you know, that that's using the, the appropriate periods to measure momentum and, you know, and, and doing it properly in a, in a quantitative system. That's not like going to our website, like I was talking you about before and being like, oh, this thing looks the best. Let's, let's get in this thing. And, you know, I think in the real world, that's probably what people do more often and say, oh, look at this, this momentum strategy or these growth strategies look fantastic. You know, and at least if I'm right, the next decade may be a little bit different than the previous decade in terms of, of how those strategies work.
3: Yeah, I'm just wondering because obviously lots of academics and, and Vanguard and um, iShares, et cetera, have published research analyzing the performance of, you know, the top performing mutual funds or the mutual funds that had the, the highest flows. Over the last month or the last quarter or whatever, and um, almost universally, the return chasing strategies underperform. The you know, yeah, no, is, I think that's right. As you say, a momentum component to it, right? If you are disciplined in your rotation between funds in that way, but as you say, that's typically not how people do it, right? People sort of arrive to, they, they come to, oh, I need to select funds now because you know some life event or they they decided that they um, want to start investing or they are doing a portfolio review at that time and they go and search for the top performing funds and then they invest in those funds. And It's totally idiosyncratic, right? right. And any strategy that adopts that that, um, approach is essentially doomed to fail. And, you know, universally, the academic literature sort of finds that, right? So I'm just wondering whether or not you have been able to sort of analyze the most viewed or most, most tracked or most popular strategies through time and then, you know, how those most popular strategies have evolved after they became most popular. But I suspect that's kind of hard to do based on the um, how your platform is configured.
4: It is tough to do, but you're right. I mean, if you look at like the way investors invest in mutual funds, what do they love? They love three year performance. You know, what is a horrific indicator of the future? Three year performance. Um, so, yeah, and I'm sure the same is true of our strategies. I'm sure people look at them and say, all right, what's doing the best over the last few years? And, you know, that, that's going to continue. And, you know, to be honest, in, in short term periods, that can work. I mean, if you've been riding the growth strategies, um, it's, it's worked. But it, unfortunately, long term, it typically does not work. Um, you know, we've been in a little bit of a weird market here where, where that type of thing has persisted. But, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think, you know, tracking based on three years, I think like that is, is typically a terrible idea.
3: Well, it's, it's just strange because it's not that tracking on three years or one year or five years on its own is good or bad. It's, it's basically it carries no information. It's basically random. Right. And for for certain classes of funds, if you're chasing into an equity fund that happens to have done better than average, the more likely scenario is it's going to mean revert because it's only done better than average through randomness, right? That's right. Like it's, it's, a, it's random chance, and it's going to revert to the mean, right? But in in other types of strategies, strategies with with higher alpha or higher sharp ratios have sort of demonstrable ability to persist. But you've got to dig beneath the surface. You can't you can't understand that for performance alone, right? But Everybody stops the performance because all of the other work is hard and nuanced and, um, you know, requires a lot of experience in the industry in order to, to derive any useful meaning from it. So <laughs> it's an intractable problem, I think, for many investors.
4: Yeah, and I would assume people do the same thing, you know, they do with mutual funds with our strategies um, you know, or, or yes. any strategies for that matter. I would assume they always, you know, they're always chasing, you know, performance and they're always trying to, you know, invest in what's working. And, you know, typically that's not, not the greatest idea.
1: That's what I was going to say, that it doesn't, you know, a lot of these, when, when somebody's selling a model and you're seeing what they're doing, you think, well, we should intervene, we should try to educate, but it doesn't stop it. And it, if they, you know, if you don't allow them to do what they want to do, they're going to go and do it in mutual funds anyway. So what you hope is that there's enough education on w- with what you're doing, that a small subset of disciplined investors are going to get the fruits of their labor, labor or your labor that uh, that they can stick to something, you know, or an ensemble of stuff. So they can always feel like something's winning when something else may be losing.
4: Yeah, and that was two two things on that. You know, one is that that was the point of the, you know, doing the content for us is hopefully we could, and like you said, people probably ignore it, but hopefully we could, you know, through the content, we could, you know, educate people a little bit more about, you know, well, you don't, we don't want to chase the hot strategy here. You know, here's what happens over the long term. Here's what works over the long term. So we want to do that. But also, you know, in our, the capital management side of our business, that, that was sort of our, our goal was to say, all right, all these individual strategies, they're very focused. They're going to have really long-term periods where they don't work, no matter how good they are. You know, our goal was to try to figure out how can we blend these together into something that people could actually stick with. Um, because th- again, going back to the lessons from my career, that that was, you know, it, it's very easy. you know, we had Jim O'Shaughnessy in the podcast. He said the same thing. You know, it's very easy to say to people, oh, I've got this great, you know, 20 stock focused strategy. You know, you should invest in this. And I think early in your career, you do that, but then you realize, all right, you know, people can't stick with that. Um, you know, that's going to yeah. deviate dramatically from the market. And, you know, as you guys know, everybody's judging you against the market. Um, and so I've learned a little bit over my career about maybe, you know, maybe being that absolutely focused or that rigid in terms of, you know, here's what's worked best. <clears throat> so let's stick with it. You know, might not be the best idea.
1: So you guys uh, have the capital assets. How, how have you, how, how do you think you got all these strategies you've been working on them for years as you construct, I imagine you haven't chosen one. You've chosen an ensemble mm-hmm. of factors and mm-hmm. strategies. That's correct. How how do you think about the ensemble construction of those factors?
4: So we have two ways. I mean, you know, and it basically goes back to the, the way people look at it in the research. You know, we have sort of the integration method and we have the sleeve method. And, you know, I'm a big believer um, when, when I don't know the answer or when, when I look at any issue and there's people that are smarter than me on both sides of the issue, I probably should be doing both things. Um, And so that's what we do. We have one portfolio that uses more of an integration method where we're sort of looking for stocks that have, we're looking for stocks that simultaneously pass the most strategies at the same time, Um, but we're also slightly performance weighting. So we're we're taking the strategies with the best long-term performance and weighting them a little more heavily in that composite. So that's the integration side of it. And then the sleeve side is we're selecting the strategies that tend to work well as best we can together. Um, and we're taking, you know, 10 stocks from this one, 10 stocks from this one, 10 stocks from this one, 10 stocks from this one. So, you know, because I don't really have an opinion, I know a lot of people have very strong opinions on which one of those is better. I don't. So, you know, we'll, we'll run both of them.
3: It's an obscenely hard problem. You know, we've obviously done a lot of work internally on this, um, both just out of curiosity and from the perspective of trying to improve our own strategies and emphasize signals that are more likely to um, be real and de-emphasize others that are less likely, um, and I mean, for example, one one quick study that I did. Um, the group that that came up with the Q Q ratio model or the Q model, the um, uh, Lu Zhang. Yeah, Lu Zhang. Exactly. I mean, their team posted all of their results online. I think it was like 180 different factor strategies and. Um, you know, by category and just did some super simple tests on, um, sorting them on their long-term sharp ratio or on the long-term alpha, um, and a few other more esoteric sorts. And then, you know, continuing to sort of emphasize the ones that have the highest statistical validity in, um, their historical performance. And, literally not one of the different experiments that I conducted um, provided any confidence that that we were able to select the most promising strategies going forward based on their historical performance. I mean, it's just, it's an astonishingly hard problem to solve. And, and, you know, we talk to people all the time and obviously read all kinds of literature and, and speak to advisors. And I guess in the absence of any other criteria, then they lean on choosing the ones that have the strongest historical performance, either in a back test or in a paper or what have you. Um, I mean, sadly, it just doesn't seem like there um, is any empirical utility to that approach. But I mean, if you don't have any other alternative, then I guess, <laughs> you know, it's. I guess it's like the lamppost problem, right? Like, you look for it because you've got the data, and you can you can do some analysis, even though that analysis is not useful. At least you're doing something, and you're making your best effort.
4: Yeah, like like you said, it's a really challenging problem. You know, we had a Sheridan Tippman on our podcast uh, this week, um, and I, and I wrote an article sort of summarizing the different, wow. um, which is kind of cool. You know, that was a good. Uh, yeah. I, I was surprised he said yes, so uh, we we were kind of excited for that. Um, you guys should have him on at some point because you could probably do a much better job of getting into more details. You know, we did more of a high level thing. But, uh, you know, he, he wrote a paper sort of supporting the integration approach to it. And then you know, I wrote an article this week where I was looking at the different sides of it. And, you know, I had a quote from Jack Vogel, who is, is inc- much smarter than I am, who likes the sleeve method. So, you know, when, when I look at it this way, it's just like I've got these really smart people on both sides. You know, we probably should do both. Um, you know, one of the things we try to do is, is we try to, you know, my, my Twitter name is Practical Quant. And, you know, one of the reasons is because I try to, you know, we don't use... We calculate all the advanced metrics other people use, but we try to do this, we try to look at this in a way like our investors would look at it. So, for instance, when I'm blending strategies, I have to say, are you guys familiar with Jim O'Shaughnessy's two points of failure? No. So, he's talking about the two um. ways that investors can fail. And, you know, one way is obviously when they lose money, they can sell. Um, the second way is when they're underperforming whatever they consider their benchmark to be, they can sell. Um, and, you know, throughout my career, I've, I've come to accept the fact that the second one is worse than the first. Um, I think if, if I'm down 30% and my neighbor's down 30%, I think I'm more likely to stick with that. But if I'm up 5% and the market's up 25, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to live with that. So, you know, when we blend strategies, we try to look at it in that way. And so we, we look at the, the unique blends we're doing and we try to say, all right, what would lead an investor to panic who's following this blend? And so what we look at is sort of the percentage of time that mix underperforms over a one year period, the percentage it underperforms over three, the percentage it underperforms over five. And then we also try to look at magnitude. So you know, if I'm more than five percent behind the market over a certain period, I'm more likely to panic. If I'm more than ten percent behind, I'm more likely to panic. And so, we try to look at the percentages of all those and just say, you know, what what will keep an investor in this portfolio? And that may not be as an advanced statistical method as other people use, but for us, it sort of gets it exactly the way our investors use the portfolios.
3: Yeah. So I'm going to put my dick hat on for a quick second because you know this is <laughs> this is a bit of a this is a bit of a bug, bugaboo for me. But but go ahead. But when I, I always think it's it's useful in communicating and I and I feel like Jack you actually have a, a really good grasp of, of this nuance, but I think it's important when communicating about these concepts to use the the right tense, right? Because what we know is what, what happened in the past. Right? So when you say that these strategies do this, it's different than saying these strategies have done this in you know in simulation or, or in the with historical performance right and and i guess by saying that they do it it assumes that the historical performance does in fact indicate future performance right and, and i think right. what we both know is that the the, the the correlation between historical performance and future performance is ex, is extremely low right if, if it's if it's not zero it's, it's very close to zero right so you know we could say that this this maybe was the case historically but we really don't know if that is at all going to be the case going forward, right? And that's true from a – I mean, there are certain things you can say, which is that by design, this strategy is going to have higher cracking error than this other strategy, right? Either it's right. concentrated or it's in, it's in small caps or it's whatever, right? But but in terms of the actual performance and the risk metrics, um, I think it's really helpful to, to try and communicate in a tent that allows people to connect the dots between, yeah, this is what happened in the past, but we probably shouldn't have high conviction that we're going to see the same kind of quality of profile moving forward. Is that fair? That's right.
4: And I think that's, you know, what we try, and I probably use the wrong tense when I answered the question, but, you know, what we try to impart to people is that, you know, we don't know for sure that any of this is going to work. Um, you know, I mean, you, you could say the value factor has worked historically, but No one is going to sit here and say with 100% certainty it's going to work in the future. You know, we don't know for sure. And so what we try to do is, you know, I'm a big base rate guy. And so we try to look at the past and say, what can we learn from the past in terms of how we can blend these strategies together? And, you know, we also have to apply some degree of intuition to that because, for instance, if you looked in the past 10 years and said, all right, you know, what's the optimal blend of strategies? Well, it's a growth strategy coupled with a momentum strategy. You know, it's, it's it's not indicative of the long term. And so we try to also take a look and say, when we're making these blends, you know, well, we should have value in there. You know, we should have momentum in there. I mean, it only makes sense to have strategies that have proven themselves to be uncorrelated. But you're right. I mean, you can't sit here and say the past is going to repeat itself because we, we have no idea if the past is going to repeat itself. What, what we try to do is use it to inform people as best we can. And we also try to do that on the negative side. You know, one of the things we implemented a while back is, you know, we we were frustrated with clients like seeing sort of the bad side of these strategies and then panicking and selling them. And so we implemented this document we would give clients, which was basically like here are the, all the horrible, awful things that will be happening to you over the course of your time having us manage your money. You know, here are the losses that have occurred in the market. Here are the worst periods of underperformance these strategies have ever I seen in their lives. That. Like, doesn't, we want to, because the goal I'm here is not to, yeah, the goal is not try to, to try to sell people on how great these are. The goal is to get people to stick with them because if they can't stick with them, they're useless. And so, you know, we've tried to do that as much as we can to try to identify here. Like you said, here are all the bad things that come with this. You know, we don't know for sure what's going to happen, but we're trying our best to, you know, practically think about how we can use the past maybe to predict the future. I don't know if that makes any sense.
1: Well, look, we have to make an effort, right? Investors are going to do, they're going to try to search for patterns. They're going to try to do things. So what advice you give to them? Right. So the ensemble approach that you're talking about makes sense these have underpinnings from either a risk perspective or a behavioral perspective that I'd like to work long term you know we intuit that these weightings make sense but we're not 100% sure and by the way the most important thing is you can invest in the shittiest strategy on the planet as long as you stick to it you'll probably do okay and i'm going to walk you through what shitty means and how this is what happened in X year, a 35% drawdown. And it took X amount of time to recover. I used to do that. I used to send out a good welcome to the club. Thank you for buying the fun. Now the first emails are going to be about the worst thing that, that you are going to feel in the next 10 years, what it means. And every time they, that would happen, they come back to us, I'd be like, point to exhibit A. You remember that email? shouldn't have been a surprise to you right (laughs) and it keeps them it keeps them solid and it keeps them grounded for sure i really really enjoy that strategy and i think that you know when we're dealing with the markets there's a lot of we don't know what's going to happen in the future but we have to use our intuition we have to make our best guess with the best data that we have and i think you guys are making a good effort on doing all of that for sure
4: agreed and you know i'm also I mean, I'm someone who endorses indexing for most people, although I'm not you know, I'm necessarily a believer, particularly where we are right now with the index valuation. I'm not necessarily a believer that's the, the optimal strategy. But I think when you live in a world where everybody judges everything else against the index, I mean, behaviorally, the index is probably better for a lot of people. You know, even, even if I think there's a value premium or momentum works, you know, if, if I'm going to be judging myself over short-term periods against that index... You know, it's better for a lot of people just to buy the index. So we, we ultimately tell a lot of people that's that's probably what you should do, because, again, if you can't stick with the types of things we're doing, it is worse than the index. I mean, it's it's 100 percent clear that if you're going to bail out at the worst times, you know, if, if you're going to sit there through and, you know, the, the worst times. sometimes people think, oh, you know, I'm going to have a bad year I'm gonna have a bad three years. I mean, look at just what happened with what happened with value. I mean, value just had a very, very long period where it did not work. Um, and if you can't and, and oh, it started working, Oh, a little bit know, I wrote an article <laughs> once, about this because there was sort of this, this narrative that value is back, you know, after March of two thousand, uh, March of 2020. But the reality is when you sort of look behind look behind the scenes at the factors, you know, it really was more of a low quality small cap rally than it was a value rally. When you strip those out, there wasn't like that much <laughs> going on with value. But in the value indexes, you certainly got, you know, especially the small cap value indexes, you certainly got a huge bounce back. Um, so yeah, no, I don't think, and now we're kind of back the other way. So I don't think value is working again, but it, it's just indicative of the, the type of thing. If you're going to follow a factor like value, you've got to be able to sit through because, you know, if you look through history with value, you know, look, even looking back to 2000, I mean, there's been these, a lot of times the, the big returns can come in these really short periods. Um, and if you can't sit through the horrible periods to get the short periods, then it's, it's no good to you.
2: I think, I think you really hit on a point that bears emphasizing and repeating in as many different ways as we can. And that is that if you're going to pursue any kind of objective that leaves you different than your friends, then that's really, really hard, regardless of the long term outcome is better. So that like investing in an index, as you mentioned, is a premium quality investment process, not because it leads to any kind of outperformance or underperformance. But by definition, you are with your herd the whole way through, through the elation and through the pain. You have all of the company, and and so you're not different. And in that is what makes it, I think, such a compelling strategy. You know, it's a to tribal agree. experience, right? Yeah. You know who your
3: in group is. You know who your out group is. You guys can yeah. suffer and and um,
2: you're down thirty percent together. Yeah. Everyone's down thirty percent. You're up sixty percent. Everyone's up. Like that is. Quintessentially, that is a thing that most humans like to travel in a a a common tribe. And so, so for me, I I like not being with the tribe. I like when you know someone looks at an investment and says, "You got to be out of your fucking mind," and I'm like, "Ooh, this is a good idea." Or tells me why Mike Mike has three
3: conversations like that, and he backs up the truck. That's he told me that. Yeah, as soon as I get the third, (laughs) makes sense though. Oh yeah, I, I
2: almost sold all the tobacco stocks once I talked to Hamtel. I'm like, oh, this is to common knowledge.
3: I thought buying you, you were going to go. I thought you were going to go in a slightly different direction because because one thing you you've been really good about about continuing to sort of pound home because fr- from a product development standpoint, you know, we're always sort of like, what what do people want? What do investors want? Right? Like, we can do lots of things. What do they want? And um, so you know, Rodrigo at one point said, well, you know, we need a product that is maybe not so designed to maximize the Sharpe ratio, but rather designed to maximize the information ratio relative to um, investors benchmark. And then Mike raised a really amazing point, which is what exactly is their benchmark? Because right now their benchmark is the S&P 500 because it's done so well over the last 10 years. But if you'd ask people what their benchmark is in 2008, after the S&P had underperformed every other global market for you know a decade, then they would have a very different perspective on what they're focused on, right? So, so people's benchmark changes over time. Sometimes you're focused on, yeah, on small you know, um, caps. Sometimes you're focused on value stocks. Sometimes you're focused on growth. Sometimes, you know, like it, it's very hard to. Sort I think of say, this is a, this is
2: an extension of the same problem, Adam. Right? So, so the first thing is, oh yeah, if you can define what your benchmark is and who your tribe is. Then the next thing you have to realize is that's going to change, right? So from 2000 to 2014 and, and 2000, 2008, when the S&P had no returns and emerging markets went up, I don't know, 10x. I mean, I remember bricks. I remember potash and and all of the, the fertilizer stocks being, you know, very, very popular a- across North America. And uh, Amazon did nothing for three years. No one talked about Amazon being anything except a shit technology. Well, it didn't do nothing. It had a 90% drawdown. Correct. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Precisely. Anyway, it's just... There, so there's there's this idea of, hey, benchmarks are good in a lot of senses because they put you in a group. But then there's this extra dimensionality, which is your benchmark preference is also going to shift through time. And this makes it really well, hard. Well, this
1: is, this is you know, what... What? What? Sorry, Jack. Go ahead. We said the result has spoken long enough. You go. <laughs> no, I was saying. You know, right now, certainly the S
4: and P five hundred is everybody's benchmark. Um, given, yep, given what's done and. You know, and I know you guys are big risk parity guys. You know, we run some multi-asset stuff based on uh, some research papers. We found these these things called generalized protective momentum and protective asset allocation. Have you ever heard of them. But, you know, and that's really a problem right now, because if you're doing anything multi-asset right now, you're way behind the S&P 500. So these, these are very, I think, very sound quantitative strategies we extracted from research papers, but people want no part of those right now. Um, you know, you talk about underperforming with certain factors, at least you're hundred percent long stocks. You know, if you're trying to do this multi-asset stuff right now, I mean, certainly it will have its day in the sun again, but you know, that's where it's really, that's where, when you get back to Jim O'Shaughnessy's second, you know, second point of failure, that's where it's really hard, um, is where you're, you're doing things other than stocks. Um, you know, that can be really hard in terms of if my benchmark is the S and P 500, you know, during these up, these long bull markets, you know, I'm underperforming and it becomes very challenging.
1: Yeah. Doing the right thing has been. Doing the wrong thing from a business perspective, and and oftentimes it could be for the if you don't have disciplined clients, you're doing the wrong thing for them, right? You got to sure. match the, what their whatever their values. Well, are. So yeah. I think
3: so this is actually the, that's a, sorry. Finish. For I was just going to say that the way the
1: way right we've had to grow our business is to stop trying to to sell and do belly to belly and pull people in. The only way to build a multi asset non correlated business is to put yourself out there and self select. Like people that come are like my, the Mike Philbricks of the world that want to do the complete opposite and are, are happy to take the pain uh, into, an, into a multi-asset strategy, and, and they stick with us. right. We have a unique, we have a unique subset of investors that, that we've been able to pinpoint. Now, I'm actually curious to hear, have you done a segment analysis of your audience and what type of personalities tend to gravitate to your strategies?
4: No, we haven't. Um, I mean, we know a little bit more about the clients that actually invest with us, but like the Validia subscription audience, um, you know, yeah, I don't I don't have too much information on that. Um, But even in our, you know, most of our clients tend to be long only equities. Um, You know, we tend to be the ones pushing on them. You know, like, for instance, right now, we're taking these multi asset portfolios, and we're increasing our exposure um, to those slowly over time, because again, people can't, you know, if if you get too crazy, or if you get too far from the S&P 500, but as the market gets more expensive, we're slowly adding exposure to these multi-asset things because you know the one thing you can't do is be like all right the market's expensive i'm going to cash um so you know we we think we need strategies that make sense that have long-term track records that are multi-asset that we can add to and so we slowly have been doing that over time um but yeah most of our investors are long only investors um and, you know that but that might change a little bit if you you know you get a protracted bear market or something people are going to have you know i know we, we went through 2008 so i know people have very different opinions at the bottom of 2008 than they do now but for right now you know people people certainly love long stocks
3: i want to throw a yellow card at mike harris here mike come on man you can't you can't be raising individual strategies here and and, and asking for explanations yellow card dude
1: <laughs> so so let's go back to the fact that everybody wants to be long only equity i found that in my career in north america as well i think what's interesting is what is right is being a like you said when people come to you you're going to give them say do passive because mm-hmm. you're going to be able to stick to it and that's better for you but like it's funny to me how American investors think that the markets are just gonna go up forever. Right? It's not true, and it hasn't been true for many global markets in history, right? But there's a belief right now that no matter what happens, the US of A will always provide, right? And yeah, no, that's true. Like there's there's really you know, it's it's such a doing the right thing on something that we have we we don't know what's going to happen with a lot of these factor strategies but we also don't know what's necessarily going to happen with the s&p 500 in our lifetime right like it's so it's just such a an interesting concept for me italian market goes to zero you know you look at israel you look at uh peru you look at there's multiple markets that just never had that chance and yet here we are. That's the the belief is Warren Buffett invests all your money in the S and P 500 index. You won't be, you know, you, you won't be disappointed.
4: And there's there's you know there's a recency bias to this whole thing. Obviously, you know, everybody is into whatever's working. You know, I remember like in at the end of 2008, like the, you guys know the permanent portfolio. Obviously, there's that mutual fund that tracks it, and you know, it had its largest inflows ever. You know, it became a huge fund right at the bottom. Um, and so yeah. you know, people do whatever it is that's working right now, and then they tend to reverse themselves when it's far too late. So I think, you know, to some extent, we're just talking to nobody um, by saying these types of things because they don't want to hear it. But, you know, I agree. I mean, I, I would be, I mean, I, I, most of my assets are in the multi-asset portfolio right now um, because I'm, I'm a big believer that, you know, right now that's, you know, markets are expensive. You know, I, I want to have multiple assets here, especially with uncertainty about inflation. Um, you know, I want to have some exposure to value. I mean, I don't know that that's going to work, but I, I want to have that because the S&P 500, you know, if you look historically it'd at the returns when it's this expensive, they're not that great. Um, you, so you said it, that, Jack.
2: you don't know if it's going to work and you right. don't know if all the other stuff is going to work. Right. So either. You need to take a measured approach across a myriad of strategies so that something will be working. That's right. But yeah. You're, you're so right. You just threw me into a deep depression. We're literally talking to nobody. No, I think to <laughs> like, some extent we are like holy mackerel, Mike. Can you see my brain splattered on the wall behind me? Like it's you. <laughs> hey, hey! You literally changed I'm changed My paradigm.
1: Yeah, Butler yeah, is I'm there with say, bells I'm
2: on. You know, the <laughs> other problem with this,
4: though, is you have to also keep in mind, you know, what's possible. And so, as much as we say, you know, valuations are high, expected returns are low. Like, I mean, if you look at Japan, I mean, if you look at the tech bubble, I mean, this could go on a lot longer before you know and we can't predict that we can't do anything about it there's no investment strategy we can follow that's gonna but i mean it it could go on a lot longer i mean we we can't sit here and say this is when it's gonna end you know i mean these these valuations tell us maybe something about what's gonna happen in the next 10 years but they tell us nothing about what's gonna happen in the next one to three and that's the hard part about this is if people are seeing s&p up s&p up s&p up it's hard to sell these other things until you see them working to some extent like for instance We've had clients now moving money to value, not because of all of our great arguments about you know how cheap value is or anything about that, but because value came back after March of two thousand twenty to some degree. You know that's when clients are like, "All right, now I'm going to put some money in value." So you know that's the hard part is until you see it with your own eyes, you know you're just going to believe S and P up, S and P up, S and P up is, is just what it's going to be.
1: Yeah, no, we're seeing the same thing in our in the the fund we subdivise, uh in the U S. You know, you talk about this inflation. Trend and that, you know, if inflation comes, you're going to want to have exposure to commodities and active commodities and all this stuff. And um, it hasn't happened for many years. So people left, people just. Kind of left, and all of a sudden this month they're all emailing saying, "Hey, I bought back. You know, you guys are doing great." Like, no, I actually think we've hit the peak of the next of the of the recent inflationary thrust. Perfectly wrong timing. I want to ring the bell. No, but if I say that, Mike, then it then it won't happen. Oh, it's the opposite. (laughs) Oh, I see what you're doing. Oh, but it is it is fascinating to continue to see it, even with educated investors, and uh, and it's just.
2: Uh, I mean, we're honest with ourselves, we, we all fall into this, right? The, the, you, you, just because you know about the behavioral vulnerability doesn't make you immune to it. We we are all continually falling into it. So, yeah, it's to, as as you say, Jack. You put rules around it. The re- reason we're quantitative investors is because you want to put rules around your decision making, so you're less prone to you know making decisions influenced by recency bias which influence your overconfidence bias which makes you think you're very confident in the current decisions you're making and of course they're totally uh data-driven decisions uh that you're you're making which you know for all of us is entirely untrue i do want to ask you uh, one thing so we're, we're sort of november of 2021 and you know so we're getting close to the end of the year so jack what's sort of the most surprising thing that you've learned this year? What was, was there any aha moments for you? You've been at this for sort of the better part of 20 years and really kind of researching gurus and factor strategies and, and all kinds of ways to slice and dice this. Did you have any moments this year where you're like, damn, that that either particularly resonated really well with me or that's really new, novel, neat, and I hadn't considered that? Because you've been scouring... Sort of the the landscape for twenty years. Was there any aha moments for you this year? There's, yeah, there were a ton.
4: Um, you know, well, first of all, not not related to our own strategies. There was that someone took eight thousand dollars and turned it into five point six billion with Shiba Inu. Um, that was a, that was probably number one. Although they probably couldn't sell it for that. That was a, that was certainly a little shocking for me. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it would go back to like uh, you know the the stuff. Corey Hofstein has covered in his in his piece, um, you know the idea of the the impact of option dealers and the impact of a lot of things that ne- don't necessarily have to do with the fundamentals of a company. Um, you know, I've always been this guy that, that reads the Ben Graham quote all the time about the voting machine and the weighing machine, and that the weighing machine, you know, in the long term will win out. But you know what I think I've learned is that the voting machine, the market is really always a voting machine. It's just a voting machine that tends to care about fundamentals eventually. Um, it's not a weighing machine in the long term. You know, I mean, ultimately voting drives the market. But, you know, you hope that the people who are doing the voting eventually will be rational and will care about the fundamentals of what they're buying. And so, you know, I do think and I'm not an expert in this, but I do think we're sort of in a period where maybe we're going to see longer periods of detachment from those fundamentals. I mean, we've always seen periods of detachment, but we might see longer periods of detachment from those fundamentals than we have in the past. And that's something just for me, for anybody running a fundamental strategy, I think we just have to think through and you know, yeah. understand what are the implications of that.
2: Well, I think Mike Green and the reflexive nature of the cash flows that come into the savings vehicles and, and the implications that passive investing has to funnel the, that capital actually provides a competitive advantage, right? Where that particular set of circumstances may not have existed in previous iterations of the market. And so it's ever changing this whole game and maybe it's not a weighing machine anymore. Maybe it is. No, it's, a, machine.
3: it's a totally a voting machine. And all the voters are on crack. Dude. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, I, I will, like will a, say like, like a, uh, voting to give themselves more crack. Yeah.
3: Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Adam's interview. I vote for more crack.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I say, I mean, Adam's interview with Mike Green was one of the most eye-opening interviews I've ever seen. Um, you know, cause you did a really good job of getting his ideas out there and, and even things like the fact that, you know, passive indexes hold a lot less cash than active managers. So, you know, you give cash to a passive index, a lot more of that cash is going to be invested. And as this money rolls from active and management, you know, it, it could lead to like sort of a melt up type thing in the market. I mean, I, I've learned so much from I've learned a lot from Mike's research. Um, but there, there's a lot of things like that, that are going on now that I, I mean, I, I didn't know anything about option dealers, to be honest, before the 2020 thing. And, you know, I've done a lot of research on that. Now, I've learned a lot about how, how they impact the market. And obviously, options activities up, so they impact the market more now. But I think those are a lot of things as a fundamental investor you have to at least think about. I mean, I don't think you can completely dismiss them. You have to think about how, how does that this, you know, I'm, I'm a value investor. How does this play into the way I think about the markets? And I, I don't think I have a perfect answer for that right now. But I, I think it's something that that I, that I think about all the time.
2: So it's a, it's a great point. The alchemy of finance. Anyway.
1: Sure. Anyway, I was just looking at this this concept. You talked about multi-asset. and I was just actually uh, talking with a group. And one of the questions was. Why do you think multi-asset alts have just done so poorly in the last decade? And the obvious answer is what you just said, Jack, right? They, every, the only place to, to win has been the S&P 500, maybe, maybe Treasuries, maybe a 6040 US-based. Everything else is done really poorly. The tactical is not great. Diversification is not paid off. But there's been a lot of strategies that have had equal or higher sharp ratio to the S&P right but and, and when we discuss it i'm like well, what what's your favorite strategy right now it's like all oh, this strategy is amazing it has a sharp ratio of two um but still it's been disappointing right because it just doesn't done much and i'm like well what's the volatility oh well, the volatility is three percent right okay so you have a sharp ratio of two with a volatility of three which for every unit of risk you're gonna get a unit of return so you're getting six units of real return in that fund right and then you have SP which historically has, let's say a sharp ratio of 0.5 with a volatility of 20, right? And you're getting your 10% return. You're still beating that too sharp portfolio. I mean, the issue doesn't end up being that necessarily being long passive S&P or any any fund is better than multi-asset. It is the lack of implementation of modern portfolio theory to use capital efficiency to get that extra exposure for your two-sharp portfolio to crush it. I was just, as you guys were talking, I just did the RPAR index times two to match the volatility of the S&P 500, and it does better than it, right? So I kind of feel like the narrative needs to change here, right? Multi-asset hasn't worked if you're unwilling to use leverage, it, but it, you know, it also you know, does a pretty good job like most tactical mandates just run at a significantly lower ball and therefore a significantly disadvantage. It's not a, it's not a fair race. You know, it
4: also plays into sort of the different audiences. You know, you guys primarily, I would assume deal with an institutional audience and we deal with a retail audience. And so, you know, my, my retail audience stops at sharp ratio. They don't even, they don't even know what that, you know, they don't want to hear that. Um, They're basically like what performed the best. Um, I, I want to see that. And so, you know, our, the, the argument you just made, although a very valid argument is not one, we can necessarily make because it's it's, to a different audience that that's a different argument. But what I thought was really um, you know, that's what I thought was really genius about return stacking is the idea that you know, you accept the fact that people are going to judge you against the 60, 40 portfolio, give them that return and then stack something on top of it. Because you you guys would probably say, you know, risk parity is probably a more optimal portfolio than return stacking. But you have to you have to accept the fact that people are judging you against this sixty forty portfolio, and that's better than the alternative. So you know, the return stacking I think was I thought was a really interesting idea. You know, it's something I hadn't thought of, and you know, I, I enjoyed interviewing you about it on the podcast. But I, you know, it's to me that's a really cool idea because it accepts the fact, the behavioral aspects of the way people actually work in the real world.
2: Yeah, it took us ten years of banging our head against the brick <laughs> wall. So we we don't learn fast. <laughs> no, I don't either. Don't worry, <laughs> that's it. I don't have. any And look follow-off. at me still raging, raging against it. Right, I'm still pissed off. And sometimes we don't learn at all. So just, that's right. I mean, believe me, I'm in the same camp with you. <laughs>
1: no, but it was funny talking to them because they're like, "Well, look, we're thinking about a Hadman sleeve that has." Uh, you know, like sovereign bond-like volatility. So we want a strategy that can have that type of risk profile. Another strategy that has a corporate bond volatility profile. Another one has like equity-like volatility. But what what do you recommend? And I'm like, the same strategy lever to different volatilities. In fact, we lived through this, right? As you you see different, we run like a 30 to 25-ball strategy and a six-ball strategy. And I literally... Got like, congratulations on that six ball strategy. How well you guys managed that 2020 crash. That's amazing. You guys must be really proud. And then the guys that were looking at the 25 ball strategy saying, oof, what's wrong with you guys? You guys got absolutely hammered, right? It's the same thing, but at different levels of risk. It, like The best thing fits in any risk bucket you want. You just have to kind of scale it. But anyway.
4: And, well, um, you guys can probably. That was, know, but guys, that
1: was like an institutional, an institutional conversation that was like eye opening for them. Which is, and yeah. you talk about retail. This is at the institutional level, man. It's everywhere. Yeah.
4: And, you know, you guys can probably help me figure out how to explain it to retail because I've, I've just been trying to explain NTSX, you know, to retail, like the way it works, like levering a 60-40 portfolio. And it's, you know, it's complicated. Um, you know, people don't necessarily understand how it works. And, you know, the, as soon as the word leverage is introduced, <laughs> risk gets, you know, matched with it right away. Um, and so, like, it, trying to explain that is, is challenging. Um, although I think that well, the concept is a really good stacking. concept.
1: Yeah, the return stack, yeah. that language seems to have, is helping us a lot for sure. The idea that was really stacking. that was a really smart term. Right, you have you know, whatever return you have on on the one thing. We're going to try to stack returns on top. That is that starts the conversation, opens things up a little bit more. So start with that. Start playing with it. But I think it's also it's still tough. It's
2: also important to keep in mind when an institution asks a question like that. It, it comes back to just like absolute power, money flow corrupts asset returns absolutely. If you get massive money flows into an asset class that are persistent over time they drive that asset class price up and where the money flows are coming from that asset price goes down. And when you get flows coming out of emerging markets and coming out of commodities persistently for 10 years and flowing to one asset class, U S stocks, and U S bonds. Five stocks,
3: oh, dude. Five, yeah. Five stocks. <laughs> that's <within> right. That.
2: <laughs> right. I mean, that that's the answer. What, why, why we've seen it. We've seen it in so many different manifestations in different ways. You see either an avalanche of money coming into a space or leaving a space. And that has cataclysmic effects. And sometimes it's for a reason. Money goes where it's treated well. And as we if we are in the midst of a of a commodity impulse again, well, money seeks for the best rate on its discounted cash flow rate. So of course it's going to start looking at areas where cash flows from oil and gas are maybe going to be robust, more robust than they were in industrials or some other. Um, company that is a user of that input and will feel that in their margins right and those macroeconomic regime shifts have implications for asset prices and that's why you know we went from exxon being the largest company within the s&p 500 in 2007 and 8 to now it being i don't know what even is it now google or microsoft or one of those
3: microsoft i think is it, isn't tesla like 98 percent
2: of the s&p right now
3: <laughs> anyway yeah uh, but but
2: you, i mean that's that's I, the great thing about a market cap weighted index is it's momentum based. So I want to you...
3: get Mike revved up. I want to get Mike revved up, Mike, because you <laughs> we were talking about you we were talking about uh, um, understandability, right? And how retail doesn't understand NTSX and they don't understand the leverage and this and that. Mike, how much does retail understand? You know, or how much? How much do most investors? Never mind retail, but how much do most investors, including? Many institutional allocators really understand about the nuts and bolts of what's going on in the in the portfolio, right? Like, I feel this 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 on yeah. understandability. How how relevant is that in your opinion?
2: I think it's totally irrelevant, right? So do do I do I understand how the toilet works? And <laughs> do, because I don't understand how the toilet works, do I go and have a poop outside? No, I, I use the toilet, <laughs> right? I mean, come on. So so, and then, and then the way in which people fool themselves into thinking as though they understand. If I hear another investor say, "I invest in blue chip companies," I'm going to throw up. Like <laughs> as though you could understand the incontro- yeah, GE and Bank of
3: America, Coca Cola yeah, yeah. or, or Coca Cola.
2: Explain to me, simple company like Coca Cola, but explain to me the derivatives book of Deutsche Bank, please, by all means. It's a conservative bank or any bank with their offshore uh, uh, entities, their offshore profits, how they onshore those profits to avoid taxes in a legal manner. Like it's insane for anyone to talk about a banking institution as though this this thing is a non levered, safe dividend type investment. Ridiculous. Coca-Cola. What are the inputs for Coca-Cola? Well, you got sugar, you got carbonated water, you got transportation, you got bottling contracts. Is this supposed to be a simple company? Are you kidding me?
1: It also you doesn't just sell Coca-Cola. Like it's just
2: Yeah, you can't contemplate the multidimensionality of all the inputs and think that you I buy blue chip stocks. Like honestly, please stop. Can we all stop?
3: <laughs> I think it's well, the but- time right when we 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 could we could sort of rely a little bit more on a company earning its margin from its operations, right? But I think we're very far away from that, where now the vast majority of profits for so many companies in so many sectors, all of the margin is earned on the financialization side, right? If you look at sort of car companies or like so many manufacturers, you know, I've got a very good friend who operates in the in the airline industry and his he, he generates all of his margin from allowing airlines to move their inventory off balance sheet and be able to, 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 declare some sort of financing rate on the, on that inventory, be able to book those as earnings only to then move it back onto their balance sheet for the major- for the rest of the quarter, right? So like, basically the whole operation is vendor financing, like in, in a financialized economy, operations for most companies are almost irrelevant, right? And what happens under the surface is that you earn money on spreads on on financing. So anyway, we've never been further away from being able to understand the true operational, um, like operating leverage of companies than we are, I think, in the current environment. And I think that complicates matters even more for investors who are trying to think about things from a fundamental perspective
1: which is why momentum is so momentum and trend are so interesting right because there's a component in every live trading asset class in the world that has to do with the zeitgeist of uh, of the world right look at any stock look at tesla for the longest time and continues to be something that is based on a future dream not even a future expectation of cash flows right what is bitcoin really what is every cryptocurrency out there right now but a dream Right? What was that uh, uh, line that from Marcus Aurelius that you gave me? Anyway, it doesn't matter. It's it's just it's all very interesting that today, today, and maybe always, there's a portion that has to do with reality and underpinning of an actual economic interest of an f- organization that is growing and is and is creating something society is going to benefit from. But there's a large portion that has to do, even if it's only transitory, with pure zeitgeist. And so to think that you're going to capture everything through a single factor like value with that, and, and ignoring how he, that this is all a story, as Noel Joel Arari really clearly uh, told us in Sapiens, it's all just story-based. How do you capture that story? Well, you do it by just saying, oh, something's gone up. I'm going to invest in that thing that went up until it stops going up, and I'm going to short the thing that's gone down for, for one period until it stops going down. How do you not capture the zeitgeist and call yourself an investor? It's one of the reasons we use momentum, but also, you know, I, I use this with clients all the
4: time. This whole, this whole idea that price is truth, um, and so, irrespective of whether we're right about value or right about this other stuff, I mean, momentum is something that's just going to invest in whatever it is that's going up. And so, in this type of world we live in, I mean, I think momentum makes you know a ton of sense. Like it, sh- it should be part of of these processes because you know a lot of stuff for me, you know, and you guys are smarter than I am, but a lot of stuff's been going on that I just don't totally follow. Like I remember, you know, you brought up Tesla, um, squeeze metrics had a post recently where he was talking about how this could end with Tesla being 25% of the S and P 500. And like, that's so beyond what I can even conceptualize that I have to take a step back and think, I mean, I don't know if that's possible or not, but like, if that's a possible version of this world, like, what are we going to look like? What is value going to look like? I mean, I have to think through all those things because it's, I mean, you guys probably have an opinion on that, but you know, that's just a very different world than I thought was possible before, you know, this whole the coronavirus, you know, crisis.
3: Well, Cliff and the value t- posse, you know, lived through that, right? If you could talk to um, the guys at GMO, for example, like a, the, the value guys lived through that from ninety-seven to two thousand, right? And that was that was almost a lightweight version of what we may see in this cycle, given the amount of financialization and gamification, et cetera, that is that is um, embedded in the system right now. So, I mean, we could see just the most catastrophic drawdown for value strategies um in history well worse than what they happened. what happened in 2000 before this is true that's not my base case but like you say jack in the current market environment you need to be prepared for a lot more outlier outcomes than i think most people are are prepared for well, yeah that's right jack, I mean, that-
2: jack you said it well too with with japan right japan was a two two to three x overvaluation on the nasdaq it was what 100 cape or something 100K. at the top right yeah yeah, yeah. It, it it was it was significantly more overvalued than we got to in the tech. But so, by the way, that doesn't mean that that's the limit. That's not the limit. Yeah, no, no, like, that, that's that. just another limit that happened. Well, we can get we can double that too. What makes you think that that's the uh,
3: you know that's the ceiling? And well, you just know, imagine what the PE of Tesla get twenty five percent of the index, like right. <laughs> the, well then, to your point, <laughs> though, I mean that's.
4: You know, it's terrible. If, if that if that's the world we see, it's obviously terrible for value. But also, what's it like for the index investors once tw- Tesla becomes 25 percent of the index? Like, what are their future returns look like? I mean, they can't be yeah. very good, I wouldn't assume. Right. Yep.
1: Well, it all depends. Right. Like a lot of this. What's interesting about what you mentioned, Adam, on the gamification of things is that the gamification has led to real outcomes for companies and their ability to to survive and thrive, right? I think um, the GM GME was able to, or like GameStop was able to pay off debt, was able to buy back stock, pay off debt, survive and start like thriving again, right? Based on what? Some dudes on (laughs) in a computer that really liked them decided to gamify the thing. Like there are real impacts to the zeitgeist, whatever that is. And I think Tesla has been able to accomplish and create real things based on an audience, a zeitgeist, a a, a belief system, a religion, whatever you want to call it. So capturing the answer
2: imagination is capturing
1: the imagination and then and then coming up with real shit that they wouldn't have been able to do if they didn't have the money behind it that was that came from stock issuances, borrow and the like from this movement, right? So I don't I don't know if the answer is Tesla is clearly a zero. Clearly, it's not a zero, and I don't know if Tesla doesn't discover I don't know cold fusion all of a sudden, and and it and everything catches up because of this. So it's it's a we, it's it's a bit of a brave new world. And again, emphasizing like an <laughs> emphasizing how momentum you can you need your value because we got to be grounded to some sort of reality, but you also need your growth and you need your momentum because you, that just follows a thing. That the price and the truth of price is telling us,
2: right? So, so I, I want to just caveat the whole momentum thing because I've been a, lo- I love momentum. I have been a momentum guy for years, and you get punched in the dick repeatedly for years as <laughs> yes. like it's just you it's get true. dick punched for fucking years following momentum <laughs> as one area crests and the other area falls in the fight. And but you, you have momentum. Get, you have trend. It's just like someone speedballing you, like speedbagging you. You are just—it's <laughs> horrible. So I mean, I know it's like this. Oh, it's so good. I trust me. It is. A you need. You, but horrible this is strategy. this
1: is where value, like this is where ensembles come in. All right, sure, it's about the blind spots. It, it, clearly, there's value in value. You need to f- identify true companies making real things that are undervalued by the market. 100% mm-hmm. you need to do that. And some portion of the population is paying attention to those things. Some portion of the population doesn't give a fuck about those things. Yep. And that is also truth in a different way. And you need to capture that in a different way, right? Putting them together, obviously, is magic, the rebalancing premium and all that. But it's just an explanation as to why these other things that shouldn't exist exist because th- people don't want to believe that th- that it's all storytelling in different ways, Right? And you need well, to capture the I, I different think, parts of the story. I, I mean,
2: it, it is it is really a stretch for a lot of people. I, I believe that it's storytelling. Even fundamental analysis is storytelling. It's storytelling. It's a, it's a broadly adopted way in which everyone has a lens that views the world, which then dictates how cash flows are situated, which then dictates how assets move. And if we decide that that's going to have a slightly different lens, I mean, obviously, Ben Graham's seminal work in that in that field kicked off the whole sort of zeitgeist around fundamental investing for the last, what, call it 100 years. And maybe it'll be something else that, that grasps the, the world and we institutionalize it through uh, institutions like the CFA and we, and we teach people all to learn in this way. But this is when you, again, the excess return, the, the, the specialness comes from doing something different, right? We, you know, having played sports at a high level, you think your protein powder's any better? You think your workouts any better? Like, what are you doing on your team? What was it, what was the best NFL team doing? How is the how are the New England Patriots able to win in a zero sum game seventy five percent of the time for decades? Right? That there's some magic there that they're doing. They have some sort of assembly process or some. There is some magic there that's not just sort of, hey, we work harder than the other guy. We put in more time. They're doing things differently. They're taking steps that others can't or find uncomfortable or can't do because of myriad of reasons, right? And this is, you know, when something gets institutionalized and the lens gets there, you've always got to be around the periphery. I think that's something that at Resolve, I would say we pride ourselves on in, in so many ways, whether it was Keto diets, whether it's doing different types of training physically to achieve other outcomes. Like there's all kinds of things where we're kind of always in some weird spot, you know, where th- there's these four guys in Russia that do, you know, the deadlift like this, and this is how you do it, or the like Louis Simmons West Side Barbell. There's a reason why, you know, eight of the top deadl- deadlifters in the world are all at his gym. And there's a reason why Omaha has all of these investment uh, portfolio managers that crushed the S and P 500 It's not by mistake. It's not coincidence. I don't think.
1: No, it's and finding those little, those areas, those dead areas that nobody wants to touch and participate in them before everybody some, else. Some magic. Yeah. Them. Something.
4: And, you know, to yeah. your point, I mean, it's, if you're going to succeed in investing, you have to be willing to be different and with different, I don't know who it was. a Corey that said, no pain, no premium, or was yeah. it West? I forget who it was, but <laughs> no pain, you know, whoever, no game, no whoever it was, the, the point is, yeah, being different is going to be very painful at times. And if you can't suffer that pain, you're not going to succeed. I mean, that, that's probably the maybe the number one learning from my entire career is that. Yeah, um, and for the investors who can't suffer that pain, buy the index, buy the 60-40 portfolio and move on for the people that can they probably will earn an excess return over time but it's going to be ugly it's it's not going to be this smooth ride i mean you're going to you're going to look like an idiot you're going to be at cocktail parties sometimes you know with people laughing at you because they bought shiba inu or something and they're you know they're making huge returns and so you know that's that just comes with the territory but you know it's and that's been the hardest thing for us is like figuring out who the people are that can handle that and that understand that they are willing to be different and that, that gets back to the idea of telling the people all the terrible things that are going to happen to them. You know, it's, it's the idea of trying to identify those people who are willing to be different versus those people that you should just say, all right, go to Vanguard and buy the S&P 500. And, you know, that, that's an, a work in progress because I haven't figured it out. But, you know, I think it's something we will continue to get better at, hopefully, over time. To your point,
3: you know, it's, I think it's worth emphasizing, and you did say this earlier, so I just want to repeat it, really, that no pain, no premium has two dimensions. One is, an absolute dimension, so you can't generate a premium unless you're willing to tolerate losses, like absolute losses, right? But you also can't generate a premium unless you're you're willing to tolerate tracking error, right? There's two ways to generate a premium. One is to be to take risk, like absolute risk, like risk losing your wealth. The other is to take relative risk, risk being different, right? And I think really what what the way we have approached the problem from the beginning is I don't like taking the risk of losing my wealth. I will risk being different, but, but being different, I think to your point, Jack, cause I think you said this earlier, I think being different is harder I agree. than, 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 than risking losing your wealth. Right. For the reasons that we talked about tribalism, et cetera. Right. But, but by virtue of that, I think being different also has the opportunity to generate the highest premium Right? You, you actually are able to generate your expected performance. If you can tolerate being different is actually higher than your expected performance. If you can tolerate losses. And I, I think this is something that if there's, if there's one thing that, that I've sort of taken away over maybe the last three to five years, that is a really interesting, um, thing that, that I have come to, which, which, uh, I think has, has sort of crystallized why we've decided to go this direction, but it also is a harder path. Like for an asset manager, it's a harder path because it's harder to be different than it is to suffer losses together.
4: I agree. And I think the, the other thing for me is I've learned that being different is not a one and zero type thing. So, you know, 50% in the different and 50% in the same, you know, is, is a good thing for some people because That's they can stick way. with yeah, it better. Totally. And so, you yeah. know, I used to feel like, all right, let's be completely different. And now I've sort of learned there, there's a continuum and you can sort of evaluate yeah. each person and decide how willing they are to be different. And then you can maybe position
2: them, you know, according to that. There's a dimmer switch. Yeah. yeah. I agree. You just want
3: to be different switch. enough to be able to generate the premium, but not so different that they're going to bail when it gets, when that difference gets too large, right? That's, right. That's yeah. the kind of Pareto frontier. You want like a certain expected return or a certain level of absolute risk in terms of volatility and a certain level of tracking. Error, right. And you're trying to sort of, Optimize on that frontier, which is a moving target too for most people, right? Depending on how they feel, what benchmark they're tracking, et cetera, right? So this is a hard problem, but I agree. The dimmer switch. Speaking about, of
1: not all you or know, nothing is. Clear. Speaking of doing different things and going against the grain, and um, you know what I've been working on is um, is diving, is doing free diving, and the different techniques that exist in order to be able to hold your breath and and what you can do to improve those things, looking at videos, you know, reading books on, on the whole topic. And one thing that was very interesting is one of the best divers out there says, look, this is the best technique uh, to actually physically learn to hold your breath longer. And it's go out there every day and hold your breath for four minutes. And look, I've done it. The way it works is in three phases. The first phase is you feel pretty good the second phase is you start feeling really shitty and that you, you kind of want to give up a little bit. And the third phase, which is as equally long as the second and first phase, is when you start actually gasping for air and you're convulsing. And you can le- you can actually hold on to that for an equal amount of time. So I was able to do that uh, up to four-minute hold, which I never thought in a million years I could do, Right. Now what he says is to get the best at this, do that every day three to four times. After the first time I did it, I was supposed to do a second round. I did two minutes. Like I did not wanna be in that level of pain. And so I was watching a video of this, this top guy in the world and he's like, here's the technique. This is the best thing, but the thing that's actually gonna get you to free up for the rest of your life and get you prepped and get you good enough is to do two minute holds, do five rounds of two minute holds three times a week and never go to the limit because it's so psychologically painful that you are simply going to give up on on doing it and you're going to give up on the sport so that which, dimmer which, switch approach apply, it's just which, so like it's
2: so painful you, know what? you can't do it rod this is where the funny thing is you, you're absolutely right by the way right what can you what's the what's the dose that is the effective dose to get you to the place it's interesting though when you coalesce with others who are doing said thing you will do the four minutes because everybody else is. So you just got to go find the freaks. And if you hang out with the freaks, you're not going to be the one who only does it three days a week. Right. So it's, it's kind of this interesting thing. So if you really wanted to, to do the maximum, you would, it's just like Louis Simmons. You'd go to West side barbell. If you want to deadlift 1200 pounds, yeah, but I mean, those guys are all crippled too. and
1: nearly dead, right? Sure, like what sure, he sure, talked no, about hey, is that hey, there's hey, a point listen, in time to win some trophies. We're talking about long term hey. investing, right? No,
2: no, no. I, I, this I, is about free we're, diving we're for the rest about, of your life. We're, we're talking about gaining some level of expertise in some area that is really sort of three standard deviations above the norm. And if you really want to do that, go hang out with a bunch of other three standard deviation freaks. And that that that's I, and I'm not saying that's optimal too, because then, then but i don't, again, I agree you with you 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 might so
1: in a I, moment I, in time in a moment in time, you are going to achieve that excellence by being in the ma- maximum amount of pain in investing it's about
2: staying power right it, and so 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 think about the uh, we by the way, we agree here, so we're not we're not disagreeing i think we're there's a nuance in why have people been able to coalesce around certain investments and hang in there, whether it's, you know, Bitcoin or Tesla, or because they have this, this group that is their new tribe, right? So all all I'm suggesting is that, and I'm not saying it's the right thing to do is if you wanted to to do the every day, three days a week, that, that terrible thing, you just hang out with 10 guys that did that. And then you would do it because those are the guys you're hanging out with and, and you would not want to under underperform with those 10 people. So if you coalesce around a whole bunch of Bitcoin guys, you're gonna hodl because you don't wanna be the guy who sells and is left behind with your hodlers, right? You, Are so, the so, only
1: so. value investors left Wes Gray's people? Is that, is that <laughs> oh, yeah. what you're saying? No,
2: we, we've, the, the key here is we've gotta find like other value
4: investors to you know, bring together with our value investors so that they Correct. You know, believe in the Correct. way the Bitcoin people believe.
2: Correct, um, you got to, you should Jack, you should think about building the communities within your interface. I don't know, you probably, you may do this already but build the communities around the strategy so the value guys can, can get around the water cooler and have their little mushroom cap of tea and say, oh, it was a tough day in the value market today. Yeah, but you know, <laughs> we
1: love it. And
3: then you got the momentum guys going break And breaking stock.
2: Tina, <laughs> yeah. Tina, there is no
1: alternative.
3: what yeah, right. well, 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 we don't...
2: The opportunity for the tribalism within the area in order for them to have the stick to itness in order to make it through the dark times.
1: Cause
4: what we don't want is them at the cocktail party with the S and P 500 guys. And Correct. we particularly don't want them there with the Bitcoin guys. Um, because <laughs> yeah. that's going to be a, an even bigger problem. <laughs>
2: that's so true. That's awesome. suicidal that's guys. Yeah. Yeah. This, she, she, you know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> on that All note, right,
2: boys, what do you think? That
1: was great. Thank I love much.
4: that. Thank, thank you guys so much. I uh, really, I really appreciate you having me on
2: recap where everyone can find you and, and, uh, I always mispronounce Validea. How do you say it again? It's Validia, but it's uh, I think Validia. pretty much everybody.
4: I think pretty much everybody mispronounces it, so that's yeah, not yeah. a uh,
2: Validia. Okay, but yeah. We'll so I'm
4: um, I'm on Twitter, uh, Practical Quant, and then my when I write articles, it's at blog.validia.com. So those are those are probably the two best places to find
1: me.
2: Great, and yeah, got And we have so obviously we on. have the excess
4: returns podcast co-hosted by me and Justin Carbono.
1: Guys, uh, everybody like hit the like button yeah, yeah, and share this like content button. for every person that hits a like button. Mike is donating a million dollars to your favorite charity. <laughs> um, he's announced it. You donate um, some Shiba Inu, right? Yeah. Shiba that's Inu. right. Grand
2: color, grand color. Not true. That's not right. True.
1: I didn't say which dollars I said. Dollars. <laughs> um, yeah, guys, thanks. Uh, thanks a lot for those who are still around and, um, and, uh, yeah, we're, we're also on all on Twitter. Reach us at investors all.com and, uh, I am doing the outro, so I'm buying myself some time until I figure out how to do it. All right, guys. <laughs> See y'all. Thank Thanks, you all. Thanks, Jack. Really appreciate Thank it.
4: You, Thank you, guys. Appreciate it.
1: Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolvecom forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at InvestResolve. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and see you next time.